and I add my welcome to Ray's and to Mark's. It's wonderful to see all of you here this morning. It's great um, to be able to, to have this privilege to preach to you from Psalm 92 as we take a break from Jonah, as Ray mentioned earlier, to look at this great psalm. It's maybe not um, the most familiar one to, um, to uh, many of us, but as you can see from the title that I've given this talk, it's an unstoppable song of joy that God gives us in Psalm 92. And so I pray that that will really strengthen and encourage us to go from here uh, singing praise to the Lord, whatever the week ahead, the year ahead, the years ahead hold, hold for us. Let me pray now uh, before we dive into Psalm 92. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your sovereign goodness and bringing us here and giving us your word. And we do pray now that you would help us not only to understand it, but to be changed by it, that we would delight more in you and your word as we go from here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's great to see the hall packed out full with all of, of, all of you. Um, and it's fitting, given the title of this song, this psalm, as Delphine read to us, it's called, it's called A Song for the Sabbath. So it's fitting that we began this morning with joyful singing. But this psalm raises a big question. How can it be in a world full of pain and suffering where often there's no punishment for wrongdoing, that Christians without fail break out into singing every Sunday when we meet together? Well, when we leave here, we'll go back to being a small minority in a big, bad world that has no regard for God, by and large. A world that has no regard for God, but yet seems to be on the winning side. While the people of God seem weak, we seem irrelevant. And the world out there, well, it's either not interested in hearing the message of the Bible, of hearing us speak about our faith, or, in many cases, downright hostile to it. And often, this will be our experience as we try to witness our faith at work, amongst family, friends, with our neighbors, or even in what claims to be the church, as we seek to live faithfully in obedience to God's word. Giving thanks Singing praises to God may not come naturally to us. It's hard sometimes to delight in God in a world that flourishes in its opposition to him and to his people. But these opening verses of this psalm say emphatically and without any qualification that it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to his name. Now, I think we can take this both in the sense that it's inherently a good thing to do, to give thanks to the God who made us and gives us every breath. It's a good thing to do. But I think we can also take this in the sense that it is good for us. It's good for the one giving thanks. There's a good that comes of it. 
it lifts our eyes from what we see in front of us to consider the greatness of God that so transcends this world. Well, I'm due to go on holiday soon with my family to one of our favorite places to go on holiday, to the mountains in France. And one of the things that I love about being there is the sense that it gives me of my own smallness and the greatness of God. And you can't help wonder when you're there, at the, you can't help but wonder at the majesty of God in all of your own ambitions and worries and everything, all the details of your life just seem so less significant. And that's a very liberating perspective to have, freed from the self-seeking of the worldling as we look beyond this creation to the one who made it and rules over it. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. And wonderfully, as we see in the second verse, as the psalm goes on, the particular object of this thanks and praise is God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Qualities that are sadly lacking in our human nature and otherwise absent from the world. And verse 2 tells us this thanksgiving, this praise, well, it's not confined to one day, just to Sundays, but it's continuous. It's day by day throughout, um, throughout the day, 24-7, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. And God's love, it's not theoretical, but it's displayed in action. And that brings us to our first point. This rejoicing comes from looking beyond this world, to God's great works. As the psalmist says in verse 4, God has made him glad by his works. He's made him sing for joy. And this leads us in the next verse, in verse 5, it leads him, that is the psalmist, in verse 5, to this sudden outburst when he says, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. But, now here's where the big surprise comes in the psalm. Having declared God's steadfast love and faithfulness in verse 2, how great his works are in verse 5, where would we expect uh, this, the psalmist to turn his focus to next in verse 6? What are these great works of God, the works that make the psalmist sing for joy? Well, what, what would we expect to follow next? Maybe redemption, God's redemption, exemplified in the Exodus as he brought his people out of slavery and into the promised land. But that's not where the psalmist goes. He turns his focus to the ignorance of the stupid man in verse 6, or the wicked, as he's described in verse 7, as they're described in verse 7. And stupid here, and in the Bible in general, isn't... Um, speaking of an intellectual capacity, but of the one who pays no regard to God, who lives as if there is no God. And similarly, wicked doesn't mean some obviously evil person like a Hitler or a Stalin or Pol Pot, but just synonymous with the stupid man. Or the fool, as verse 14 says, the one who says in his heart that there is no God and lives their life accordingly. 
In other words, it's what we're all like by nature. And in particular, the focus is on what the unbelieving person cannot know or understand. These are the great works of God mentioned in verse 5 and fleshed out in the rest of the psalm. And the ultimate judgment of God on the rejection of him is the first of the twofold great works of God that the psalmist has in view. Well, verse 7, we see, is full of realism about what's going on in the world around us. Though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish. You just have to read the papers every day to see that that's true. But despite the unbelieving world seeming to have the upper hand, the psalmist is able to rejoice in God, first of all, by looking beyond this world to God's great works in judgment. Now this is jarring to us. It sounds like rejoicing in somebody else's misery, but that's not what's going on here. The psalmist is just making the point that if you rule God out, if you ignore the Bible or disregard what it has to say, then you cannot, by any human means, ever know or understand what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. That's the human condition without God. And so to reject his gracious revelation really is a stupid thing to do. And it's wicked. And it's what we all naturally do. And it's deserving of God's judgment. Well, this fleeting flourishing of the unbelieving world that's mentioned there in verse 7 is contrasted in the starkest terms with where they are ultimately headed as verse 7 goes on, they are doomed to destruction forever. But for the Christian who's suffering for their faith, maybe facing hostility, hostility or isolation from colleagues, from friends, even from family, often as those who oppose us seem to go from strength to strength, this psalm doesn't just tell you to grit your teeth and hang in there like some kind of a stoic but it gives a much greater reason to rejoice, to keep on singing for joy. And that comes in verse 8, which is right at the heart of this psalm, right in the middle of its 15 verses. And in verse 8, it's the fifth time out of nine, again, right at the center, when God is mentioned, the Lord is mentioned. And the attribute of God that this verse brings out right at its heart is God's everlasting rule over all. As verse 8 says, But you, O Lord, are on high forever. I've put that at the top of the notes as the key verse for this psalm, and that's our unstoppable song of joy, that the Lord is on high forever. Well, all of us long for justice to be done, don't we? I mean, think of um, Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, an unjust war that has unleashed destruction on innocent people. And we long for justice to be done, but that war rumbles on 
And who can say whether justice will be done in this world, in this life, when all is said and done? I have a friend in the city who, um, who's told me of a Christian brother from Ukraine who's uh, studying for ministry here in London. And he's got family back home living in that war zone with their lives constantly in danger. And yet my friend tells me that he's always full of joy. He can and he does rejoice in the knowledge that God reigns on high and justice will be done. And nothing can separate him or his believing family back home from the love of God. Well, I was just going to bring up a picture of the old Bailey, um, of, the, of Lady Justice, who stands atop the old Bailey. And you can, see that you can see her from many vantage points rising above the skyline of London. She has scales in her left hand representing fairness, impartiality. And in the right hand, a sword representing the power to execute justice. Now, those things don't always happen at the Old Bailey, the center of, um, of the law courts for London. But for the Christian believer experiencing pain and suffering, particularly as a result of injustice, having turned to God in repentance and faith, there is great comfort in the knowledge that he is sovereign over all, and justice will be done. Justice delayed is not justice denied. Well, when COVID struck and everything went into lockdown, um, one of my sons encouraged me to really get into cycling. And one of our favorite routes passed by a pub called the Hope and Anchor. It's one of the many um, enticements along the way uh, to stop for some liquid refreshment. Well, when I cycled that route recently, I was sad to see that the Hope and Anchor was all boarded up. It's abandoned and just waiting for demolition. And you might be thinking, well, so what? What has that got to do with me? But I think there's an object lesson in the name of that pub. What is your hope? What anchor are you holding fast to when the storms of life come? Well, COVID came, and now the hope and anchor is no more. And it's the same for us. If our hope, if our anchor is in anything in this world, there's a pandemic that will take us all, 100% of everybody. Death will come to us all. In the ultimate end of those who reject God, those who are cut off from his loving rule, is to perish and be scattered, as verse 9 says. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Well, cast away, they'll be cast away from all that is good forever. Never finding that hope and anchor, that home and rest, that ultimate Sabbath that we're all searching for, and the song for the Sabbath is pointing us towards. But our next point, Christian believers have a great hope, a reason to rejoice. 
as we look beyond this world to God's great works, yes, in judgment, but also in salvation. Verses 10 to 11, if you turn the page over, continue in the first person. So this could be the psalmist speaking of a a personal experience of deliverance. But I think it's clear from the words in verses 10 to 11 that this is the psalmist speaking in the spirit and pointing to God's Messiah, to his promised king. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. That horn is a symbol of of power and authority. And the fresh oil, a symbol of anointing, God's anointed one, that that these verses seem clearly to be pointing to. God's promised king, who would win a great victory over his enemies and establish his everlasting kingdom. Ultimately, this is pointing us to Jesus' death on the cross, where we see the downfall of Satan himself, the conquering of sin and death, as Jesus took the judgment for his people that his people deserved on himself and died in our place. And he rose again from the grave, conquering death, the last enemy. And this fulfillment of verses 10 to 11 is very clearly described in the Apostle Peter's first letter in chapter 3, verse 18, which we'll look at now. It's there on the screen, so you don't need to turn to it in your Bibles. But let's read that verse. 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So here we have those great works of God, God's justice and God's mercy meeting at the cross, where God's righteous judgment on sin is is delivered, but his undeserved grace in eternal salvation to those who have turned in repentance and faith is also made available. And that brings us to our last point, where the psalm lands, our ultimate good. It's all about knowing the great works of God and living forever for the praise of his glory. Verse 12 switches from the first person to the third person to speak of the righteous in the plural, they, those who have been made right with God through the means that he has provided through the cross of Jesus Christ. A subtle yet very great contrast is drawn in verses 12 to 14 between the apparent but fleeting flourishing of the unbelieving world that sprouts like grass, as verse 7 said, and the flourishing of God's people, of believers, which is invisible to the world and for all that we can see as we look around at the world. But verse 12 says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. I've just got some pictures there of some withered grass, the flourishing of the wicked, of of unbelievers, 
Um, and there we have, as the psalmist says, the, flour the flourishing of the righteous is like a palm tree, like a cedar in Lebanon. Great symbols of strength and resilience, of peace and of abundance and everlasting life. Notice the present tense. The righteous flourish now, and they will continue to flourish through all trials, all tribulations of this life, through everything this world can throw at them, right to old age, broken bodies and all, all the way to the grave and beyond. And where have they been planted? Well, verse 13 tells us they've been planted in the house of the Lord. When this psalm was written, that would have been, in a physical sense, the temple, the place where the sacrifices were offered that enabled God's people to be at one with him, restored to a right relationship. And today, the house of the Lord, of course, is the church, not a building, but the people of God, wherever the people of God, those who have been made right with him, through Jesus' death on the cross, are gathered to worship him. But again, this is pointing us to the ultimate Sabbath, where God's people will be in his presence, enjoying him forever in the new creation. And finally, as we come to verse 15, the last verse of this song, this tells us the point of all of it. This is where we get the big, the big application. Psalm 92. So what is the big point of it all, of this rejoicing as we gather weekly as the body of Christ, to sing God's praises, to be reminded of his great works? Well, it's to declare to the world, to the people around us in the places where we live, in our offices, among our family and friends, wherever we may be, that the Lord is upright. He will judge all wrongdoing that stems from rejection of him with perfect justice. There is no unrighteousness in him. So even if people reject our message, God will get the praise for his righteous judgment on what is ultimately a rejection of his grace-filled love for this lost world. Well, for anyone here this morning who wouldn't call themselves a believer, who wouldn't say that they know God, this is a loving warning not to stay in the dark, never knowing him, and ultimately being cut off from him. Even if you're skeptical that there is a God who has revealed himself in the Bible and lovingly wants us to be in a relationship with him, the stakes are very high. This psalm is also a grace, gracious invitation to keep coming back, keep hearing what the Bible is saying to us as we seek to open, open it and understand it week by week. Well, none of us are righteous. No one in the world is. Only the Lord Jesus is. And he is our rock. He is our hope and anchor. And the world around us needs to hear that more than anything else. And our praise, our thanksgiving, ought to overflow into declaring God's great works to others. The fruit that we're called and empowered through God's word to bear 
right through old age and to the end of our lives is to tell others about him, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray. Father God, we do indeed thank and praise you for your words, for who you are, and for what you have done. We thank you for showing that to us and reminding us of your great works here in Psalm 92. And do pray, Father, that as we go from here, Lord, we would be rejoicing in your justice, in your mercy and love, as we seek to declare your great works to others around us. Please would you be glorified and please would we more and more delight in you as we go from here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now our final song.